Ahoy there, crew! For your safety, be sure to stay seated, keeping your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast, and watch your children. And remember, no flash pictures. Now off with you! Bienvenidos, marineros! (laughs) I didn't expect you to do that. Um, (laughs) Where where else are we going to have an opportunity to do the Pirates of the Caribbean safety spiel? That's true. For our intro. I'm surprised you've waited this long for it. Well, it's the only... As, as far as I'm aware, this is the only animated pirate movie in the main canon, right? Unless I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Other, other than Peter Pan, but you, there's the Peter Pan But ride. we have a Peter Pan ride for Peter Pan. And, and if we're, we're going to go classifying Peter Pan as a pirate movie, then I think we have to go classifying, you know, Aladdin as a Vizier movie. <laughs> nobody nobody wants that. Return of Jafar has got enough of that. Yeah, that is exactly right. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, we don't talk about the, we don't touch on the sequels much in this particular podcast, so we're okay in that respect. <laughs> uh, welcome to Animusings, everybody. It's been a while, and we hope you're having a, uh, a good December, as we, uh, as good as can be, as we try to close out 2020 um, and you know move into a, a better future if all if all goes well. Uh, I am your host, David King, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Kayla King. Hello. And our guest for this particular recording is a, well... It's all right. I, a, I, 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 I am a dot, 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 well. It's an excellent description of uh, my career. <laughs> he is a well of uh, storytelling, let's just mm, say. I like it, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I much prefer that to multi-hyphenate. That's good. That's there good. we go. Uh, an author of many uh, fine graphic novels and comic books are, and our friend, Jackson Lansing. Nice to meet you, uh, everyone out there in the universe, and uh, thank you so much for having me uh, uh, to both of you. This has uh, been a long time coming. I think we talked about this at like WonderCon like two years ago, and I was like, I like Disney, so I'm so happy that uh, you uh, finally had uh, room in your schedule to have me on and to talk about a movie that I, I'm actually a, a pretty enormous fan of, so this is a good kismet right here. Oh, but, yeah. Actually, uh, let's start with our uh, background histories, because um, I, you actually suggested it's like, oh, can I do Treasure Planet? And I'm like, yeah, we don't have anyone for that. Um, and the reason it took so long is at the time we weren't anywhere near Treasure Planet. We have a, we do this on a monthly basis. So and there's some right. movies. Uh, Turns out, yeah, it's funny to realize that we're only just now getting into the early 2000s. And I'm like, oh, okay, we're catching up. And then I remember that that was like almost 20 years ago. <laughs> And at the rate that they're going to start dropping uh, new Disney movies on Disney Plus, uh, you are officially never going to catch up. Oh, this You're is gonna very be... true. At this rate, by the time we you know come around to say, like when we first started this podcast, the original ad was like, "Hey, to Moana and beyond." And now, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, let's yeah personal personal histories of the film. I think that's a good way to start. And just to confirm that, just in case no one knows what we're talking about, yeah, this is Treasure Planet, which is, I believe, was 2002, yes? Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, And and, and has, I think, the the sort of unfortunate timing uh, of having come out at the same time as another movie um, that I loved a lot as a kid, which I think a lot of of us felt like we needed to choose between, uh, Titan A.E., which had uh, very similar vibes, had a similar sort of 2D to 3D mechanic that it was going through, uh, but uh, had the sort of benefit of being a, an original picture and feeling a little bit fresher and it had 
Creed in the in the trailer, and it just <laughs> seemed somehow cooler because we all thought that Creed was cool somehow. Can uh, and, you uh, take me higher? There it is, and, and that and the the song that launched a thousand uh, a Titan A tickets. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we came out the other side of that. Um, you know, in retrospect, uh, I think Treasure Planet comes off uh, as a as as the superior film. Uh, but at the time, the box office did not uh, seem to agree. I, I seem to recall it not doing terribly well uh, oh. for them. Oh yeah, we'll get into that because it's <laughs> it's not just Titan AE it was going up against. There's a couple of other powerhouse films it was going mm-hmm. up against. Mm-hmm. Uh, to st- once again steal the bit from Nothing New, we'll put a pin in that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think you, David's and my personal history are, is very simple. I saw it once before I saw this movie and uh, that was, oh my goodness, I don't even remember. I just remember I saw it once like on television when I was a teenager and huh. that's it. That's it. That's it. I didn't even see it in theaters. Wow. See, I saw wow. it in theaters. I do distinctly remember seeing it in theaters. For some reason though, I only recall having seen it the one time and which is weird for me because anybody who knows me knows that I'm a huge pirate nerd. I love stuff that has to do with pirates. And this is like Really cool. I wouldn't even see space pirates. I'd say it's Aether pirates. It's like got an Aether punk vibe, and it's like it, this. This movie's aesthetic. I am one hundred percent here for everything about it. And yet, I've only seen the movie one time that I can clearly recall. It stuck with me. A bunch of it resonated with me. And this is also coming from someone who loves the original Walt Disney's Treasure Island, which um, I will be drawing a lot of uh, parallels to as we go through this, because this is not the first time Disney has touched upon this particular story. Although the basis is very, very different when you compare the two movies. Um, but beyond that, I do, I can say, at least safely say that the aesthetic stuck with me for a while. So that like, for example, when I play D&D games set in a world like Eberron, where it's got this these big dramatic classic airships and things like that. I often hearken back to Treasure Planet in my mind's eye and uh, think of that cool... I can totally see that. Right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Eberron, Eberron has a uh, huge Treasure Planet vibe. And I, I mean, mean, the thing uh, the thing about it is like, there's not, there's almost no other movie in this period or, or really anything up until like relatively modern history in terms of film that tried to do this aesthetically, like mm-hmm. revisiting Treasure Planet, which I, I, I did just maybe a month ago um, out, of, out of sheer luck before y'all uh, mentioned that you wanted me to do this, um, it was a, was a kind of a remarkable revisit because I, I, from the very get-go, you're sort of sitting there being like, How? they actually, they really committed to like a steampunk or aetherpunk a- aesthetic at a time when I'd argue it had not yet crested into public imagination. Oh um, yeah. I don't, I don't think we'd hit that point where people were really shorthanding steampunk. I, I, I certainly didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think back to it, I'm like, I wonder how many people actually got turned onto the aesthetic by Treasure Planet and that became a baseline for them, even if they didn't necessarily realize it. Because um, even if nobody saw the movie in theaters, a lot of people saw the trailers, a lot of people saw the posters and the Disney film was a huge wide release. And the funny part is this sort of idea started in 1985. that's my transition to history no i kid you not it took them like 10 years to like they had this idea and it took 10 years for them to finally say okay uh i know we've been talking we've we've been uh, talking about the build up the treasure planet through like several episodes as we followed uh the directors from film to film to film talking about, hey, can we do our baby project now? Yeah, so, can we do Treasure Planet? So so Treasure Planet is the baby project of Ron Clements and John Musker. And they first pitched the idea of uh, 
what quote unquote treasure island in space uh in 1985 and this was the same time they also pitched the little mermaid and of course little mermaid was chosen then later on they're they're like hey we still want to do our treasure island in space movie and they're like yeah but uh, i see you have this aladdin idea let's go with that instead so they made a aladdin that made good money and then they tried to push for it like they kept pushing for it but they're like well we want the fairy tale stories and this isn't a fairy tale story uh and then they pitched it to jeffrey katzenberg <laughs> who basically was like no i don't want to do this at all and it doesn't matter you're doing what i say you're doing you get to choose only what we want and then if you do what we want maybe maybe we will do your if, if I never hear the words Jeffrey Katzenberg again in my lifetime, <laughs> it'll be too soon. See, that was a really fantastic Jeffrey Katzenberg impression. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it, it did sound, it did come off as overwhelmingly whiny and petty. So yes. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how, what led them to make Hercules. And then finally, Jeffrey Katzenberg left, quote unquote left, in 1994. Uh... <laughs> uh, Gracie had to chime in about yeah. uh, celebrating the fact that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg is out of our hair, sort of. By the way, if you hear snorts, uh, that's our dog, Gracie. She um, she snorts. That's that's her. That's she her. makes contented noises like that. Uh, yo, definitely thought that was just you making a fun snort sound. So <laughs> much better that your dog has excellent comedic timing. That <laughs> certainly just... does. She's kind of our morph. Wow, so. I'm here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it. Everyone should have a morph. Everyone should have a morph, especially after I, revisiting this movie. I'm like, oh I my just, God. I just, I just have a dupe. <laughs> oh. <sighs> anyway, right. So, uh, so he, when he finally left, quote unquote, left in 1994, uh, Clements and Musker actually went to Roy E. Disney and was like, we really, really want to make Treasure Island space. Um, and he said, yeah, uh, you have my approval. Yeah, let's do it. And then uh, that, that finally got them to get their movie approved in 1995. Which Well worth it. Yeah. Well worth it. Thank you for your 10 years of hard work and, your, and then the, the persistent uh, inability of that idea to actually make money. Uh, I'm so sorry to both of them but they did good good job yeah. thanks yeah. boys you really could call it a persistence of vision or or at least just um you know hammering away at jeffrey until he finally goes away <laughs> i love it i love it go clement to musker yeah <laughs> so um according to producer roy uh conley they said their goal was to develop a space world that was warm and had more life to it than you normally would think in a science fiction film. So at the time when um, when they were developing Treasure Island Space, uh, films like uh, Blade Runner, and um, I'm trying to think, of, there's another one, but Blade Runner is definitely the big one. And it has that cool city vibe, very depressing, where they're like, no, we want to go the opposite direction, something more warm and like, mm-hmm. um, uh, it has more hope to it. Dare I say fun and whimsy? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so the goal for this, they kept saying this over and over is the 70, 30, which is 70% traditional, 30% sci-fi. And this was included in the artwork as well as the music. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually this is a a film that was also about 50% computer graphics and 50% hand-drawn. And they utilize a technology called deep canvas, uh, from Tarzan. 
and uh, took it a step further, uh, creating um, basically a virtual set, 360 degrees, and then of like each scene, and then would put the characters in film it that way, which is insane detail. (laughs) And that actually, oh my gosh, the backgrounds are, wow. Uh, Those are some incredible backgrounds. Uh, it's it, it's actually uh, recently one of the ways that Treasure Planet came back to mind. And one of the reasons uh, my wife and I revisited it is uh, Disney has a, um, they have a new program that's on their Disney Plus. It was just one of their launch programs. Uh, and I don't know the, the name of it off the top of my head, but it's effectively an atmospherics program. It's like, it's like Disney ASMR um, or like Disney screensavers. Uh, and the idea is you, um, it's just got background plates um, or, uh, uh, or like long takes of locations uh, from their various animated films. And it just kind of sits on them with some atmospheric sound. Uh, and that's it. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. No music, you know, it just sits on it so that you can just kind of have it there if you want something in the background that isn't like a full on movie. And she was watching one of them that was just called Cities, I think. And it zoomed in on that big um, city rig from the beginning of the film. Uh, not Montressor, but the- um, The spaceport? Yeah, the spaceport and is moving in on that uh on that thing and uh alex called me in from the other room she was like what is this this is amazing and then, we're, and then, and then we and then we both at the last minute were like oh my god right it's treasure planet like you, you forget that this movie even existed but like you then you see any individual element from it and it's so beautifully done uh the the actual like the backgrounding and the cgi uh to to 2d compositing work is uh, really remarkable well, it's a, it's a bummer that it almost seems like they were they were taught by this movie that that wasn't going to be successful because as a technology it is it, I think actually wildly successful in this movie. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, unfortunately, so the reception for this was not good. Uh, Uncultured swine. Yeah, so, but they're monsters. <laughs> <laughs> so the budget for this was 140 million and. To this date, it is the most expensive traditionally animated film. This is this doesn't count inflation apparently, but in terms of like how much money they it took to make this film, that's it is the most expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it was released on November twenty seventh, two thousand two, and unfortunately, <laughs> there were some other films out at the time, like you said, Titan E. The other one that came out. A week prior was Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. <laughs> yeah, that really um <laughs> that that kind of messed things up. That like more kids were going to see that than this film, sadly. Um and uh the film ended up grossing only about 38 million domestically and about 71 million internationally, totaling up to about 110 million worldwide, which that's considered a flop. Oh, yeah. Uh, but here's the funny part. Uh, reviewers were very positive. Like, like um, reviews would be usually comments mainly on the beautiful animation and they love how exciting it was, how oh, yeah. action-packed it was. Um. And actually, this film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature, um, but lost. And honestly, I, this deserves it. Uh, it lost his spirit in a way. Yeah, I, I tend to think that that's the other thing about, like, in revisiting reviews from this movie. Um, in advance of this, like, one of the things I saw over and over again is people being like, well, it's no spirit in a way. And it's like, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> no, you're correct. It is no spirit. Like, <laughs> like 
this this bubblegum popcorn sure isn't made by the greatest chef in the world. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's true. Like, like it's not a sushi dinner. Like, it is a different thing. Um, but it, I think for what it does, it does really rather strongly, all things considered. I have issues with it, and I'm sure we'll get into all that. But like, yeah. But yeah. I, and, 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 but, you know, when you put it up against Spirited Away, it's like, all right, well, good luck. Like, good luck with any movie, any given year, going up against Spirited Away. Like, it's a stone cold classic oh absolutely you can you can have the coolest like aesthetic imaginable and this fun amazing adventure story with these incredible visuals and then you're up against spirited away which feels timeless yeah Um, exactly also a quick note uh um best animated feature only started in 2001 oh yeah that was a category that was added to the academy awards fairly recently i did not realize it was only like to, oh, about 20 years ago see i knew it was i knew they added it because they wanted to differentiate because like there were a couple times where an animated movie got like this close to getting best picture and the academy was like kind of like beauty and the beast yep yep beauty and the beast. we discussed that uh yeah that was the first animated feature to be nominated for best picture oh my yeah. god um so yeah and i um i think it's a category that deserves to be there in all honesty so this was the second year that they did best animated picture the year before that shrek had won 2001s oh okay so yeah (laughs) again there's jeffrey again (laughs) (laughs) i'll never escape his long long shadow none of us will none of us will no that's why that's why we're all uh uh, sitting here like clockwork orange style over the holidays watching our quibbies (laughs) 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 i'm sorry i shouldn't i shouldn't kick him while he's down (laughs) No, 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 please. All things good. He kicked so just, many other people while they were down. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I just, I spent, I spent so long in like, just in the year leading up to Quibi and, and I'd go to meetings with directors or writers or producers who'd all been meeting at Quibi and they never met with us because we weren't famous enough. And then, but we would talk to their, you know, talk to people who were famous enough to go meet at Quibi and they'd all just sing us the praises of like, oh my God, this technology. Oh, it's just going to be, the, it's just, it's so, it's because, you know, Katzenberg doesn't bet on bad bets. Like this is just, this is something else. It's <laughs> and I and I got in, I got into so many fights because I I just couldn't I couldn't help myself and be like guys this is this is a terrible idea this is a this is a very bad idea this is not going to work for them and then lo and behold uh, and now I'm just I, I I but then 2020 took everything from us so I haven't been able to roll around and do my victory tour very annoyed <laughs> there's lots of people who need to be told that I was right. <laughs> and that's why i came on this podcast now here are 45 points i have about quitting there you go you can okay i'm glad you brought the the spreadsheet and the powerpoint but uh we're here to spread optimism and joy jackson oh fine if you insist no it's okay don't worry about it like i said well you can once we get off the ride we can talk about it. i feel gosh yeah no i I kid you not every time we look at the histories behind these animated films especially during the 90s just oh my goodness there would be things that jeffrey kassenberg would suggest or say and it was I've, would, would, ta- I've done double takes i've been like say what yeah well there was okay this was the man who said pocahontas is gonna be a big hit we need all our lead animators on there lion king and eh. second raiders yep yep and guess yep. what happened i i <laughs> let's not forget lion king a billion yeah a billion dollars 
<laughs> to be to be fair, to be fair, Shrek did kind of settle itself in the cultural consciousness to it a degree, did, but that doesn't absolve Jeffrey of making a lot of very bad decisions. Oh, I think it is absolutely impossible to to argue um, with his uh, uh, his his like place in film history i'm not i'm, no, I'm not no, i'm not i'm not here to actually take anything away from just jeffrey katzenberg uh, i i just think quibi was silly so <laughs> I, i'm i'm i genuinely i'm i'm uh you know he, who who am i to who am i to say he's the j cats yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay okay let's get into treasure planet yeah let's talk about treasure planet because man oh man um what a movie what yeah. a movie i love like the, 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 the moment this movie opens we get narration by tony J. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. I forgot Tony J was in this. I like. I was like, wow. I did not expect his voice to be in here. Like, I thought we would see the last of him in uh, *Hunchback of Notre Dame*. I was wrong. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Nope. You can't. You can't get rid of him that easily. You know what's funny is I also heard him once do a uh, narrate an entire documentary about um, H. H. Holmes. They couldn't have picked a better. Oh, voice. cool. <laughs> Why haven't we watched this? I, I think it's on Netflix. We should watch this. I'll look it up. <laughs> If you're a fan of The Devil in the White City, you'll like it. Oh, that's such a good book. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, but we get a sense of like sort of, we get the story of uh, of Captain Flint, who is also, I think, the first animated character we see on screen. And what a what a design for Captain Flint, huh? He's this like, what? He's got like six eyes? Yes, I think. A cool hat. Yeah, the movie movie opens strong it's just like here's some aliens here is space no one's wearing helmets it works like it, 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 it's the old time piracy you remember but like with this new modern steampunk take like i mean they don't they they jump in the first 10 or 15 minutes of treasure planet is remarkable yeah opening with a ship battle is the best way to start just kind of giving us a retrospective on on uh, captain flint and how he was this incredibly prominent space pirate actually before we continue um no okay I feel like most people would know Treasure Island is written by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's based off a very famous book. I, I read it when I was younger. Did I know David did. Have you, did you read it or have you ever read it, Jackson? Oh, many times. It was in my, uh, it was in my mom's like bedtime story uh, uh, sort of uh, rotation when I was a kid. So I've, I've read Treasure Island as, as an actual book, probably more times than I've seen any adaptation of Treasure Island. <laughs> okay. I'm a, I'm, it's funny. I'm actually, um, I'm watching Black Sails for the first time. Uh, mm. The, the Star series, which I did not realize was a stealth prequel to Treasure Island. Yep. Until I was watching it and everybody was like, I'm Billy Bones, I'm Captain Flint. And I was like, what is happening? Like, what? <laughs> Wait, I thought this was just like a show about like Anne Bonnie and Jack Rackham. And it's not. And it's very, it was very exciting to me to realize it's, that uh, it was a Treasure Island thing too. It's I'm, Assassin's I'm, Creed, it's Assassin's Creed Black Flag, but with the characters from Treasure Island instead of Edward yes. Anyway. <laughs> I said the exact same thing to somebody <laughs> earlier today, like literally word for word. Uh, it's like it's like they just took Black Flag and made it a TV show, and it made me so happy. Uh, no, I'm an enormous Treasure Island nerd. I actually really love that book. Oh, me too. Adapting me too. Uh, adapting it as a is a, a personal um, uh, goal. I, I I would love to find. A, I don't know how there is a. I don't know where the useful adaptation is for it. I don't know where my voice uh, is useful to it now. But someday, somehow. Uh, I will find my way into it. Colin well, and I are working uh, on a different pirate project right now that I get to I get to get my pirate yayas out on. Ooh, that's fun. And you know, to be fair, the perfect adaptation of Treasure Island already exists. It's called Muppet Treasure Island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a grump about Muppet Treasure Island, but I, but, uh, but I know people love it. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, my 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 favorite is my my favorite. I mean, this is definitely up there because this is an adaptation of Treasure Island. I think 
think this is actually a very good adaptation a, of Treasure it's a, Island. <laughs> like, because the important part of Treasure Island for me was the relationship between uh, Jim and um, Long John Silver. Yeah, and yeah. they nail it here. And yeah, like we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm going to be drawing a lot of comparisons because I grew up watching. Like I said, the uh, the the 1950s one, the, the Disney's first live action feature film, mm. uh, which. Uh, stars a young Bobby Driscoll, who uh, you might remember from Song of the South, and uh, later the voice of Peter Pan. Just fun fact. <laughs> Jim Hawkins. Fun, fun fact. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, space. There's. It's great. And then we 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 pull back. <laughs> I was well, just well, going to say gonna you said about. space, and I was just going to say the final frontier. I I, I, did, I was almost going to as well because obviously I, I write. Star Trek, and then I, uh, they, they he goes space, and then I'm like, I'm waiting for Final Frontier. Then you go, it's great. <laughs> I was like, that's not I, a quote, but it is now. I subvert <laughs> and disappoint. That's what I do on the show. <laughs> but honestly, yeah, I I, I I knew I somehow knew that your that Star Trek was going to come up in here because you know we got a bunch of. Got a I find Trek. it big, big part of my brand. It'll yeah, happen. exactly. It's like. Well, he, Here's another interesting thing. We had just discussed uh, uh, Atlantis a couple months ago, and Star Trek was a huge inspiration to that film. Like, they actually hired um, uh, the guy who created the Klingon language to create the Atlantean language. Oh, Michael Kuda, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And not to mention Leonard Nimoy plays the king. Mm-hmm. Right. So. So, and I don't, which is funny. I'm surprised there's that film, and then we got Treasure Planet, which you think. You'd think, but you know, it's interesting too. Cause now, cause like we, I, I, I before we, I mean, we're, we're still only at the very beginning, here, <laughs> but like, but like the fact that this movie is so action packed and isn't such a, like, you know, your typical Disney feature of like lots of musicals, lots of songs. is like, I, I really like this experimental period of their history where kind of from Atlantis for a little bit, it was like Atlantis was just kind of an, an adventure story. Lilo mm-hmm. and Stitch is this great, which, you know, follows it is this fun, beautiful, you know, story about finding families, but it's got its action and comedy elements. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a musical. It's not really musically driven apart from the Elvis Presley stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we go into this one and it continues that kind of action adventure vibe that comes from that, like was back there in Atlantis too. And I'd like, I miss that. I miss this period a little bit. This was such a fun differentiation from sort of the norm of um, like the Disney formula. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, 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 you're quite right. There was a period where they got very experimental in what they could do. And, and that was both formally and, you know, for story. Like story, it, they allowed themselves to um, sort of change up their stories and change up their forms and start to focus on different kinds of characters. But I think they also... I think the sort of counterpoint to that is that that was also them trying to figure out how to stay relevant in a, in a world where it started to feel like Disney was no longer relevant and where a lot of market forces, including I'm sure people like Jeffrey Katzenberg, were telling them that they weren't relevant and That's were trying true. to figure out how to turn it into something that felt more um, sort of genuinely Hollywood. And I always, I, I think what's really remarkable about Treasure Planet is that it presages what they will actually become known for on their live action side, which they have not yet figured out. That this is sort of the preternatural um, uh, version of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, or um, even eventually um, some of the Marvel films, where the idea is like, this is something that's in a, it's an adult enough tone that adults can watch it, but it's young enough and funny enough that kids can watch it. It's got just enough um, sense of like, 
adventure and action and danger to keep uh, butts in seats. Uh, and it's got a bunch of spectacles, so it's going to get people into theaters. Uh, but it isn't musically driven. It's not. Not, and the, the biggest one about this, and this is the one place where I think it actually kind of fails as a Treasure Island adaptation, if, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. um, is that it's about an adolescent and not about a kid. Yes. And that's a big, a big adjustment, both from Treasure Island, but also just from the general um, Disney oeuvre, that it was like, we're really going to, this isn't about a princess and it's not about a child. It is about a teenager going through teenager problems, um, oh. which is just a real different uh, jam, but is absolutely something that has has now evolved into their live action content in a in a and been, been very successful. It just wasn't here. I was just gonna say, I think one of the weakest parts of Treasure Planet is Jim Hawkins. Now, I, I mean, Joseph Gordon Levitt is a great actor, and I but there's something I don't feel like they gave him enough, or I it's I don't know how to explain. But Jim Hawkins to me is very boring, uh, very passive, and not only that. They try way too hard to make him quote unquote hip. I feel mm-hmm. like, like with his haircut, they begin with him doing like surfing and all that. And like you said, he's a teenager in this one. I think he's 15 years old. And uh, mm-hmm. if I recall in the book, he was only like 12, 13. Yeah. And part of the point of the book is that he is a, he's a, um, he's a kid with a ton of idealism going mm-hmm. into the adventure. He has this sense of like, what a sea adventure is all about. And, and Jim is very excited and he has yes. um, this very, like the, the, the way in which he trusts Long John Silver, that's what the, the Long John Silver um, turn is all about, is that here's this guy who speaks to you like you're, a, like you're an adult, but you are a child. He respects you. He understands your perspective, but you're a child. And mm-hmm. then you learn over the course of the story, oh no, this man is using me. Yes. And has, and has been using me. And in order to fight back in order to regain my power i actually need to grow up a little bit and that's a great story for a kid for a teenager he rolls in and he immediately he know well i'm getting way ahead of myself but the, he, we, we can honestly i feel like this is a film that we can jump around because but that's but okay well then that's i mean that's the big point is that he's told in this movie don't trust the cyborg which yes. is which is a which is an evolution of the of the idea in treasure in treasure island so when he's told don't trust the cyborg and then he meets the cyborg and then he's like well that's a cyborg i'm not supposed to trust and then he's he's immediately like at he's at counterpoint with long john silver sort of by necessity throughout the movie so as he learns to trust him i think the movie does a pretty good job of that relationship i actually really like how they get them there absolutely um, but it it isn't as clearly long john silver t- taking advantage of of uh of Jim's sort of naivete and lust for adventure and excitement for being um, these things that he knew in stories. It's more Long John Silver uh, convincing Jim that he's the one who sees him as an adult where everyone else sees him as a kid, which is your, you know, the problem of an adolescent that everyone mm-hmm. looks at you and says, well, you're a child. And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm an adult. <laughs> Throw it on the ground. Like, you know, <laughs> just, I feel, I feel like that's, it, it's, it's a small tweak and probably in scripting, it felt like there were, right idea um but in retrospect i think it kind of takes a little bit of the magic away because it makes the sh- it makes it inherently a little less fun and uh, inherently a little bit more uh i don't know like lost boys <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, yeah unfortunately like when jim and that's something that's kind of a difficult like when jim goes on the ship he's very like oh wow and i'm like no you should be excited you're about to go on this amazing adventure like right. that's that was like jim's dream like why are we he's so downplayed and i get why but for the sake of comparison um you know which the the 
Disney's other Treasure Island with, you know, here's Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins. He's a, he's a legit kid. All this stuff happens at the Admiral Benbow where he goes through, understandably, a very dangerous and scary thing when Billy Bones dies and the pirates show up looking for the map. But when by the time he gets to Bristol and they're getting ready to go on the ship, he's bouncing off the walls with excitement. You can see Bobby Driscoll looking at all this stuff with like wonder on his face. He sees the Hispaniola and he's just like, I, and he sees like a sailor walk by whistling. And so he starts imitating that sailor to be like, yeah, this right. Sailors do. And I, I love those little details in that one. It like, it, ca- it captures that, that feel like being a kid wanting to go on an adventure. So that is, you're right. Everybody's touching on that. That is absent from, from this gem a little bit. He's mostly doing it because he, he wants to be not be seen as a screw up. Um, he wants to, uh, you know, make something of himself for the sake. Well, partly because he, um, he's a kid that gets partly because the, the, the Benbow Inn burned down Yeah, because <laughs> the, the, the pirates show up, the space pirates show up, but right. also um, when it comes to the relationship with, with silver, um, there's the whole absent father thing. There's the whole father figure idea that comes into this too. Um, and there's a little bit of that in, you know, in other adaptations of Treasure Island. But here, I feel- Though, which, which again gets recycled in Curse of the Black Pearl. Yes. I think it's remarkable how much of this movie, in essence, gets recycled into Curse of the Black Pearl more successfully. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I will always bring up the fact, though, that the other thing that factored into Curse of the Black Pearl was the fact that it was parts of it were going to be used in a hypothetical Secret of Monkey Island movie. And <laughs> is that true? It is true, actually. Wow, boy. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a monkey. Like, that. I. Can, can, you, can you tell I liked pirates as a child? I love Monkey Island. Holy you, you, cow. Okay, you and David. We just... need to hang out more. <laughs> yeah, we gotta. We gotta just. We gotta, we gotta just put on our pirate hats and do pirate voices. You should other. see my office upstairs. It's got pirate oh, yeah. decor. All oh over yeah. So yeah. So fun. Fun fact: our upstairs is we call it uh, New Orleans Square. Our bedroom is haunted mansion theme, and our um, office is Pirates of the Caribbean theme. So oh, you are doing it right. My, my, my house doesn't, well, I guess we have themes, but they're not like Imagineering themed. Damn. I'm jealous now. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, we're re we're, we're redesigning the whole house. <laughs> it's psyched. In case you didn't hear that, my that was my wife shouting. Oh no! I, I did. I think I think they might have caught that. Okay, but yeah. good, I'm glad we caught that. But um, but yeah, like so so the whole the whole thing. So yeah, well, I mean, there, yeah, there's. I we could go. I'll we can talk about that. The whole Monkey Island connection later. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It's off topic. But more more importantly, yeah, I see exactly where you're coming from because, like, again, the, there's the whole. They really make a point in this one to point out. Like it's kind of a, almost a throwaway. It's not a huge deal in Treasure Island that that Jim's father is out of the picture. But here, especially during the musical montage, they make a big point that Jim's father just up and left, and Jim kind of had to be. I don't know. He's he's got the, part of the rebellious streak that he has. Is a he's a teenager, but b he doesn't have a father. So when Silver comes in to fill this role, I feel like they're emphasizing it almost more here. And making leaning on that more in Treasure Planet than they would maybe in other adaptations, but that's just the way I see it. That's a, that's a really interesting point, and I think I think effectively correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, <laughs> that montage. Um, there's good parts about that montage, and then there's bad parts about that montage because I feel like the um, "I'm Still Here" montage is one of like the bigger scenes in mm-hmm. this movie, mm-hmm. and 
I do like how it shows the development of Silver and um, uh, Silver's and Jim's relationship, but I feel like that was the wrong time to show like flashbacks to when his dad left him. That should have been at the beginning of the film. Like this is a weird time to yes, and I get it. It's a, supposed to be like a comparison between the two, but if it feels too heavy handed. Okay. In my opinion, I can I can kind of I can see where you're coming from there. I think it still works. But if there's a there's probably a way it could have been done in that essence. I think it's interesting because the you know in the beginning of the movie we have the story of Flint being told, and we see Jim as a child with his mother. His, and uh, you know this by the way that hologram hologram book very cool, mm-hmm. very very cool. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, and 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 in a, a really cool way of formally working the this idea of the two D and three D working together sort of into the introduction of the movie so it's like hey does this feel like a different kind of disney movie and like the elements are all kind of working a little bit differently together check it out we're sort of showing you how what we can do now that we have that technology like i I don't know i I thought that was a really nice little beat it's almost like a uh, audience education beat where it's kind of teaching you how to watch the movie a bit oh yeah i'm with you there i think that's that that makes a lot of sense um would you have uh would you have in, in a hypothetical scenario though kayla would you have like maybe had that beat follow into or somehow lead into jim's father leaving yes i think uh storytelling i think this is how i would have done it uh keep the beginning mother reading the story along and then uh kid falls asleep right afterwards and then maybe with the book in his hand and then he wakes up to hear uh his parents fighting and looks out and then sees his dad leaving while his mom is crying and realizing he's never coming back then cut to him uh solar surfing with his cool skiff glider thing gosh those solar sails are so cool <laughs> oh that's a good moment anyway. they, they are very cool it's, and, and, and very pretty and, and then would get absolutely jacked by star trek 2009 the entire <laughs> sequence just just taken beat for beat and it's like just use the solar sails man why is he driving a car come on <laughs> Um, this is also the point of the movie. I know we're kind of going fast period, but like we get work, we start on Montresor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Montres, it's it, Montresor. Montresor. I, always, I always want to say it Montresor. Mon- Mon- Montresor. It's Montresor. I always want to say Montresor because I think of the, the man who got, uh, who bricked up Fortunato behind a wall in, you know, the cask of Amontillado, but that's, <laughs> that's something else. Um, uh, yes, different. I don't know if that's the same reference, but mm. anyway, uh, Montresor and, uh, you know, for the longest time until I rewatched this, I thought Montressor was was the spaceport, but no, that's just the moon or the like area in the airspace of Montressor. Um, so it's, it kind of reminded me that this is kind of this almost just, as far as I can tell, this kind of just bland, bleak, rocky landscape with this lonely inn sitting on it, which again evokes the you know the coast of England in. Um, in the original Treasure Island and, and the lonely location of the Admiral Benbow. Um, so they're, they're hitting the right beats and it's cool. Cause like it, it's doing its own thing, but, but taking Treasure Island and putting it into this much wider, much more expansive setting of this, of the Aether. Um, I'm rambling a little bit. No, uh, it's fine. You're doing good. I'm just trying to set, I'm just trying to like mind the scene for what it is. Cause I, I really like this part of Treasure Island. I like the ominous stuff. Like in the book, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Billy Bones is there from the beginning and Jim is learning all the stuff, sort of the mysterious stuff about Billy Bones and about pirates and about some of the more cryptic stuff as time goes on. He has nightmares about the one-legged man Mm -hmm. that Billy Bones always warns him about. In this one, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, in this one, Billy Bones just kind of crashes his ship, clambers out, and he's some sort of like slug dinosaur alien. Mm -hmm. Um, I do appreciate that there's very few humans in this. Like Jim and his mother are like the only humans we see in this movie, unless I'm wrong. Yeah, um, I. Oh no, I mean Silver. Silver a, you might know have been human. No, he's not human. That's clear. He's but before he was a even before he was a cyborg. No, because he look he has like different ears. He has kind of like. Oh, is that that interesting? Like those he has those like nose ridges. Huh? Yeah, he's 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 got like a space dog thing. Like there are a lot there's a lot of aliens in this in this universe that really just appear to be space cats and space dogs. And uh, yeah. he's definitely a space dog. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That 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 tracks. In the, okay. in, yeah. In the same way that um, uh, Captain um, not Captain Arrow, but uh, the come on brain the captain the captain okay. is a cat. Yes. Captain Amelia. Amelia? Captain there Amelia. we go. Captain Amelia. Yes. In the same way that Captain Amelia is a cat, I feel like Long John Silver's a dog. Yes. <laughs> okay. That clears that up. Yeah. So Jim and his mom, mother are basically the only humans we see. I. That was always something like you and I. Whenever we watch something sci-fi, it's always like we always appreciate when like there are a lot more aliens and not just humans because there's some sci-fi. Uh, well, like when it takes place in space specifically, because it's like, oh God, why is there so many humans? Is it really <laughs> like is space only have humans? Jeez. This is the advantage of the animated medium. Yeah. Because mm. I love the creatures in this. Oh yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of great like disney weirdos like it, it really does the like what star wars does so well with you know background weirdos of just look anywhere on the screen and you're gonna see something interesting this movie has that in spades especially during the montressor spaceport sequence absolutely i mean i was the kid who would go to the cantina scene and go oh that's an a- a- angoran that's a- or an angoran or angor oh, I-, I used to be able to do that oh th- th- those are those are bith that's a uh, that's a- that's a deveron yeah yeah. <laughs> oh, Greedo's a Rodian. They come from Rodia. And I'm like, and see, I just, the, uh, so populating a world, making the world feel bigger by having a lot more uh, creatures in it is always, always satisfying to me. Um, also, we were introduced to a, a new character. I, I, this isn't an original from, this is an original character. He wasn't in uh, Treasure Island and that's Dr. Delbert Doppler who is voiced by David Hyde Pierce, which... <laughs> love, love Dr. Doppler. Just, the, and like, and just a prototypically David Hyde Pierce character. It's like they, it's like they cast David Hyde Pierce and they were like, let's, let's like rewrite this so that every single line sounds 100% more Niles. Uh, <laughs> oh no, they, just, they wrote this character with David Hyde Pierce in mind. Actually. It's, it's clear. <laughs> they started writing the character and then they heard the blues of Colin. Right, 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 exactly. Actually, Another trippy enough uh, for me because the mother is voiced by Lori Metcalf, who was in uh, Roseanne um, as the. Uh, why am I blanking on her name? She was the sister. Oh yeah, or, yeah. Or the uh, aunt, but something of that nature. Um, so both of them are like in sitcoms, and then you have these two sitcom voices, and it's like, oh, this is weird. Oh, they're great though. Mm-hmm. They do Actually, a good job. For I, us. I actually like the the like the friendship that's kind of established between Sarah Hawkins and uh, Dr. Doppler, mm-hmm. and which is which makes sense because uh, Dr. Doppler is kind of our stand-in for for Dr. Livesey from from the original, and um, it was established that they had a they they had a uh, you know a friendship in that too. So this makes sense. Um, oh, Dr. Doppler's so good. 
<laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it just so sort of inherently immediately um, funny, but also like useful and clearly uh, just, I don't know, like good natured in a way that a Disney, like the best Disney characters are where you kind of immediately trust him and never really have any need to feel like you might distrust him or he might be like, there's no cynicism to that character. He's yeah. just kind of fundamentally good uh, yeah. in this very lovely way. Um, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, oh, me too. I, I think I mean, I- Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think um, one of the great things about his character too is he's clearly written to be the humorous character. And at the time, a lot of the humorous characters were fast talking, uh, snappy, influenced by uh, Robin Williams, the genie. And he's right. not, he's a complete opposite. Like, um, like he's basically Niles, but yeah. He's space Niles. He's space Niles. Right, well, they're, they're kind of saving that energy for Ben. Yes. Right. right. Like they're saving the like fast talking weird. What did we? What are we going to get out of this comedian today? Energy for very late in the movie, and then they deploy it all at once, a lot. Yeah. To be to be fair, uh, though, I think I will get to Ben, but I think it's really nice to have this character who is, uh, you know, mostly competent, kind of goofy, uh, but only because he is prone to these like almost like uh, goofy esque pratfalls. Not to the extreme of goofy, yes. but you know, the, when bad, when comedic bad things happen, they tend to happen to Dr. Doppler. So, <laughs> and it's I enjoy very it. true. Yes, he is, a, he, is, he, is, he, is a, he is a lovable trouble boy. He just gets into all the trouble. A very, very goofy style. You're right. I never really thought about that, but especially with like the dog characteristics, he's extremely reminiscent of Goofy. I was starting to say about the, the Billy Bones angle though. So like we, we get the whole beware the cyborg thing, but we don't get that. There's, I mean, I, I, it works for, I, I, I don't have no problem with the pacing in this movie, honestly. I think the movie is paced very well. I think this movie, okay, so. But I, I almost wish there was that beat where, you know, he had been established a little earlier because I, I so liked the, how horrifying it is to, to Jim Hawkins when Billy Bones, you know, dies, reveals the whole thing about the black spot. And we've already had this history between these two characters and this the weird old man who lives at the at the inn all the time so when he just kind of crashes in a ship and then expires it's like i i don't know i i don't think it loses something you know in a broad sense but for me it's kind of like well there was there was not an, an, again an opportunity there i don't know i i think but i think it's, it's again it's something that plays a lot better when he's a child if he's a teenager uh the idea that he would have that connection might take away from the fact that he's got the connection with um John Silver later in the picture. That's like, point. It, it's, point. There's you, you. You don't want your sullen teenager to attach to too many father figures. That. Whereas, whereas a kid can. A kid can kind of find different things in different adult figures, and they and they don't all necessarily feel like father figures. Um, so no, I, I I tend to agree. But that's why they sort of seem to turn up the effort of that by burning on the end and doing all that other stuff. It's just like it's really like an effort to just turn up Jim as as, as hard as they can. Uh, and really make sure that the character feels as kind of angst out and teenagery um, as possible to, to, I think, the detriment maybe of the character uh, as they head into the picture, just because that's that's clearly the direction they were taking. It, it really feels like somewhere, somebody in the development process, and I, you know, who knows where, said, well, we don't want this to be another thing about a kid let's age it up let's try to make this more of an action movie and while they while they might have been successful in a live action version i think in, a, in an animated version it does take something away i agree i can, I can see that for sure good, oh. very good that said they do replace it by somebody on by, by an alien on the ship who talks exclusively in farts so you know <laughs> oh, they're really dialing in the tone here yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> 
Um, I will say, uh, so in the book, it's uh, Beware the One-Legged Man. And then right. here it's Beware the Cyborg, which that's a very good like uh, replacement or a sci-fi idea of someone with a um, uh, a disability replaced by, like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, mm-hmm. a, so it's like he has the peg leg. In this one, it's a metallic arm. Um, and I mean, maybe this is from the sci-fi books I've read. Cyborgs tend to be like almost looked down upon in a lot of sci-fi novels. Uh, and it, it it's here too. Uh, because it's the idea is like, well, are you more robot or are you human? That sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it, it tracks with a lot of what would happen on a ship. Usually, especially on a pirate ship, if you were, you know, disabled in battle, you were relegated to cook duty. You would find something else to do on the ship, but you couldn't fight. So you had to do something else. So the fact that John Silver was the cook and Silver, the cyborg, is also the cook. Like, yeah, I can see. It, it must- I also, I, I do think it's interesting insofar. Far as and I, as somebody is like you know as somebody who lives with a with a back disability and, and who I, I'm I'm a little I get my hackles up about um, about disability representation uh, sometimes because it's it's a a sort of common uh, uh, trope and a, and, a, and a common problem I think in general one of the things that I really love about what they do here is that um, it's never there's nothing I mean there's there's nothing about this character with the metallic arm with the uh, which has which seems in a lot of ways hyper able there's nothing about this character that would immediately tell you okay well this character is um in any way a detriment to the crew like there's not a sense of like oh well we need Mm -hmm. to keep him on cook duty because he can't do the rigging like this is a you know he's he's intensely able to i think it's more it's less about um it's less about disability and strangely more about uh yeah you i think you sort of nailed it on the head it's more that cyberpunk distrust in that which feels less human Mm -hmm. which is in and of itself a disability metaphor and is it is very much something that you go through as somebody with prosthetics or somebody with a cane where that becomes part of your sort of everyday life as well um but here it's done i think in a way that like is mostly just about jim like really yes. the, the 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 point of a peg leg the point of the cyborg really the point narratively is just to give jim one thing to identify about this person that is different than everyone else so that he can choose immediately to be like, oh, I don't know. And then slowly get to a trust with that character. Right. And, um, and, and which again, I think is, is the thing this movie does actually very well. So I like that they don't couch it in a scary disability. I like that they couch it in a more fantastical super ability. Um, I think that feels very like warm and, and, and kind of cool. And obviously still ask questions like what happened to his arm, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But without um, necessarily putting like a whole bunch of... Um, of uh, onus on the character um, to, uh, to 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 live up to, you know, some kind of disability coding. I, I do also really like that the arm is just badass. Like, yes, <laughs> the, the the arm effect is just amazing. It's one of the coolest animation effects I've ever seen. Oh yeah, this. actually, one of the things they said uh, they thought Long John Silver is like one of the more impressive uh, characters because he, I think he's the only character in this that's a mix between both CG and. Uh, traditional animation where all the other characters are mainly traditional Mm -hmm. um and it actually i'm shocked so usually when cg and animation mix together it's a little too obvious at least during this time period we definitely notice it during atlantis oh yeah uh (laughs) not so much with this i mean it's you can like i can still see it but for some reason I believe it's there still. I um, I believe that arm is still a part of him. Yeah. I don't see it as like com- two completely separate things. 
I want an arm that turns into a flintlock pistol. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you know what? It, it would, in, in that essence, since I realized that there's a whole thing, having a be having a cyborg cook would be beneficial because you literally have a Swiss army knife for a hand. Mm-hmm. There, I do recall though, there is a point where um, his, because it's not just his arm, it's his leg as well. And his like, the side of his head and his eye, those are all mechanical like that's pretty much pretty much almost everything on his uh his right side is cybernetic Mm -hmm. i i i really think his like jowls um like the 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 mechanical way that his jaw works is one of the best things about the whole animation like it's Mm -hmm. just a really cool design Mm -hmm. uh and there is actually a point where jim uses uh his disability against him like remember he stabs in uh, his peg leg, which uses the air. And I love how he, like, when he stands, like, the steam hisses out of it, and he yeah, yeah. walks a little bit of a limp for a bit there. Mm-hmm. Like, you can tell, it, like, it's a good way for them to work in that without actually, you know, hurting the character. It's a way to get some violence that isn't, like, you know, or some some combat in there that's not re- that's not gonna, you know, leave a lasting impact, for case, per se, because he's able to fix it. He's able to fix the leg. Yeah. It's a far cry from, um, <laughs> oh, I'll get to that. I'm gonna put a pin in that. <laughs> a very a very big difference that happens a little a little later comparing the two stories but uh, i mean we i i don't want to like assume everything but we we can all agree that that silver is one of the like best parts of this movie right? absolutely oh for sure <laughs> okay yeah, cool 100 percent. great uh, great great voice great animation well handled well translated from the original story i think he's fantastic yeah I think he's in a lot of ways an upgrade yeah yeah he has to be a larger than life character and boy is he a larger than life character um yep and then uh, one of the changes they had, um, so in the original, the captain is uh, Captain Alexander Smollett, and they have a female, uh, Captain Amelia, which I do like that change up because, um, let's be honest, Treasure Island was very male-centric. And, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like, you know, it was set in the 1700s and men dominated everything. It's almost like there's no... <laughs> It's just, it's, it's shocking how, how there are no women in that story. It's remarkable. Yeah. Apart from Jim's mom. <laughs> yeah, except um, apart from Jim's mom. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's Ta- bad news. If, if, no, Captain Amelia speaking, rocks. Hypothetic, oh, yeah. or, uh, if you, if you want to get, if you want to split hairs, Captain Flint is a female parrot. The, the Silver's parrot. Yes. Everybody, everybody, <laughs> it's not Polly. The parrot's name is Captain Flint. <laughs> yes. Yes, fair, so, fair so, enough. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but like, uh, uh, young Kayla uh, was always sad, like, very young Kayla was always sad that, like, there were never any female captains or any female, like, leaders. It's always like, oh, I'm the love interest. And it, I was, I remember being so desperate for it as a kid. I got excited when I saw Captain EO and cause I thought he was a woman. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, it's a female leader. And <laughs> sad to realize later on, I was five. Okay. I was like five or six at the time. Right. Right. Um, uh, and that's what, one of the reasons why um, uh, uh, Leia was an uh, important character to me because she was basically the first actual leader in a film popular film that i saw like not mm-hmm. just not just a princess but a, a general yeah and that was amazing to me a so commanding officer um as a teenager when i saw this uh i was actually i didn't okay i i didn't see it when i was a kid 
And I didn't realize there was a character, Amelia was a character in this movie until later on. I'm like, oh, they have a female captain? Really? And that I actually got excited <laughs> as a teenager when I was watching him like, oh, that's awesome. And she's awesome. Oh. And Emma Thompson is like, genuinely excellent in the role like she just gives it her all the voice is coming through so strong uh she's i I think she is the other incredibly strong aspect of this movie in terms of just like from design to casting to tone all the way down uh captain amelia is like fully formed excellent character right from the get-go yes i agree yeah i I love captain amelia she's awesome um unfortunately uh uh her uh uh, is it Smollett? No, no, it's not Small. Uh, Captain Arrow, or Mr. Arrow. Mr. Arrow. Doesn't get the same character development that... To be fair, neither really did Mr. Arrow in Treasure Island. Oh, really? But to be fair, his death is, is an important beat in the story. Yes. Yeah, yes. M- M- Mr. Arrow gets uh, man-fridged uh, in, these, in this story pretty traditionally. <laughs> he's just, he's, he, that is a, he is a character who is there to die. Um, and, and sort of always is. yeah. Can we? I appreciate the parallel they had to draw there because in both stories, uh, it's made to be it's it's made to seem like it's Jim's fault, right? Because in in Treasure Island, uh, there's a storm, and um, that that he's he's lost overboard in a storm, uh, Mister Arrow. But the reason he's lost overboard in the storm is because um, Jim gives him plum duff that was served by Sil- uh, John Silver. And of course, you you add rum to it to make it good. So Arrow is on duty while he's drunk, and because he's drunk, he's he's lost overboard more easily. Here, um, it's blamed on Jim not checking the lines. Like the lines weren't tied down when it was uh, Mister Mister Scroop. Yes. Scary yes. scary crab scorpion alien man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he he cuts the rope and sends uh, Mister Arrow into a black hole, <laughs> which, by the way, just. I, I gotta say, I, I don't know how intentional it is, but it's it's nice to know that like they don't really manage the black spot as an as a piece of iconography they in don't. Treasure Island. Uh, but it's nice to have one in space. Big old <laughs> black spot in space. It's still a pirate's death sentence. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still there. It's still very much the move. Uh, yeah, I love I love it. I also I just want to um, uh, remark another little bit of parallelism between this and Star Trek 2009, where at uh, at the end of Star Trek 09, the Enterprise is being pulled into the black hole singularity and has to disengage the warp cores and then blow them up in order to propel the ship away from the singularity. And uh, in case you were wondering where they got that Treasure Planet, uh, like the. the there are there are there are several beats in this movie that seem like they were hijacked directly from Treasure Planet. Uh, I'm not saying that they were, uh, but uh, they were. I could you know I could see it. It <laughs> it's helps. Just, it's remarkable between it, the, between the cops at the beginning, the daddy issues of Jim, and this particular escape. It's like wow, guys. That's <laughs> <laughs> also having a main character named Jim. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And if you saw my face, I'd just be might be melting right now. <laughs> And of course, there is a line in the. I forgot the. the damn it, Jim! I'm. Not in the, I'm, a, I'm an astrophysicist, not a doctor. Exactly. Yeah. So they good. wear it on their. They wear it on their sleeve. Although, though, though that that is not um, the uh, the best line uh, that he's got. Uh, no. His best line is that weird anatomically line that just confirms that in fact Doppler can get busy and would like to with the captain like it's just the like they like 
they like go out of their way to like make Doppler sexy for a beat, <laughs> yeah, which right. I I still it just feels to me like the kind of thing that like Disney didn't know what it was doing. Like it was like you know how many furries you just spawned? Yes, <laughs> like in one in one line. <laughs> To be fair, though, they do have chemistry, those two characters. I do like that. They do. Weirdly enough, they have chemistry. I feel like the romance is like, okay. The romance is kind of forced because you know Disney was like, we need a romantic subplot, damn it, because that's what Disney does. We need to have some sort of romance because we're Disney. (laughs) So let's get dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. But weirdly enough, they do have chemistry. Like- the actor, I don't know if they were in the same booth or not. I don't think so. But it sounds like they're playing off each other very well. I'm surprisingly shocked. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, they, they have a good time. It helps that they have like some really good moments where they're like, they kind of impress each other. Mm-hmm. Like from Amelia's entrance with the, you know, stock cat screech that plays, <laughs> uh, where he his, his, almost like his jaw drops to like later when they're being held prisoner and... Doppler gets to pull that cool thing where he gets the, the 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 laser pistol away from their captor and has a witty line. It's like, and 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 Amelia sees this. It's like, this is, I love these characters. <laughs> I, um, I feel like so with um, it's funny because with uh, Atlantis, and I feel like I'm going to compare the two quite a bit because they're they're, they're so close. Um, Atlantis has characters that on their own would be interesting but they don't develop them enough mm-hmm. where here they do and we they're very likable as well yeah it's funny because like uh i like milo thatch more as a protagonist than jim but that's just because i i don't know i mean well we, we've talked about this before but I, I wanted to i wanted to bring up milo real quick because i learned something just recently that i wish i'd known during the uh the atlantis recording and oh. this ties into this nicely the fact that his name is thatch is deliberate oh really because in an original draft he was supposed to be a direct descendant of edward thatch blackbeard really yep why because it would have been a cool angle that they were going to explore in that story but they didn't so they but they still really yeah yeah i learned this just recently okay i didn't find that in my research but (laughs) uh that's remarkable and weird yeah right i like that a lot yeah (laughs) that that would have i i love that because then they could have done a Blackbeard movie and they could have tied it to Atlanta. Like they could have actually like made a whole little like multi-generational Thatch franchise. That would have been amazing. Okay. Extra points if they had had, um, if they had made, if they they had made it earlier, if extra points, if they would have had Blackbeard show up and he's voiced by Peter Ustinov. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Atlantis, Atlanta cinematic universe. Come on, Marvel. Come on, Marvel. (laughs) Come on, Marvel. (laughs) On Disney. Let's make it happen. Let's go. So we're we're jumping around a little bit, but yeah, they they sail for a while. We get some beautiful visuals. Uh, we get the mon- we get the buddy montage with the song, yeah. Goo Goo Dolls lead singer. Uh, Mister Arrow gets lost in the black hole. They propel themselves out of the black hole with an explosion. I, I will say, okay, the song is good on its own. I don't know; it doesn't feel fitting as a in the movie. I don't know. Um, movie is a good soundtrack, though. I mean, just the score. The, the score. score is good. The score is really good. Again, the idea behind the score is 70% traditional, 30% sci-fi. Which is why I, d- I dig all the, like, the piratey sounding music that has a little bit of a sci-fi edge to it. So. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, the, the, the true musical phenomenon of this film will not arrive until 
I think it's like right after the black hole sequence that uh, Goo Goo Dolls drops their hit single. Yep. And we all have to deal with that for a second, which that if I, if I, you know, you go back around to like, truthfully, what are the points here that this movie doesn't feel like a Disney film that really feels like it's trying to be something that it's not. And that to me is the the most prime example where it's just, it, it feels like for a minute, Trish, around just like it looks around and it was like okay like what are other movies doing it's like well they're taking <laughs> they're putting goo goo doll songs in their in their movies and, and they're like oh okay all right well then we should we should do one too let's build a little pirate ship so that the goo goo dolls can shoot a music video and like that which they did by the way <laughs> um and like i just I, it just feels to me like the one place where you you kind of just want to reach in and give the movie a hug and be like it's okay you can you can just be a disney movie you don't <laughs> you don't need to pretend to be like a paramount picture it's okay. <laughs> i know you're just, this is like early 2000s and you sort of want to try and be quote unquote hip with the kids right but, mm, this is Put put the be genie in here. Remember, be yourself. Yeah, uh, and then uh, eventually they do reach Treasure Planet. Um, they do. They this is after the the betrayal. Yes. The 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 liar, which is you know that I like. Props to them for still keeping it. Uh, Jim hiding in a fruit barrel when he hears about it. Except in this case, instead of apples, it's perps. They're called perps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I as much as like I feel like this would be a, a drain in other movies, I do think Morph is a fun little character. I like Morph. I don't think he's obnoxious personally, which is saying something. That, yeah, I think Morph was there in I think they were really interested in doing kind of two things at once with Morph. Where like one, like Disney is is very well known for it's like them trying to be a Disney movie. It was like they, they you know, they they're really known for these um fun sort of animated uh, sidekick characters who don't take the movie terribly seriously compared to everyone else and get to like have fun and be weird and be goofy and be animals primarily. Mm-hmm. And like Morph really feels like your example of that. He's your opportunity to just have a character that is fundamentally um, uh, plugged out of the tone a little bit and just like having fun and having a good time. Mm-hmm. And it also feels like they had, as, as you pointed out, they had so much success with Genie. Yes. That the idea was like, well, let's do a character who can have the, who can let our animators have as much fun as they had with Genie and just do whatever we want and constantly flip it around and just do interesting stuff. And I think on both cases, the character is very successful. I think the, the, the place that the character maybe is unsuccessful sometimes is the degree to which Morph is just a little shit like Morph just messes with the story and is just bad for everyone and is like he's he's one of those characters who kind of like not like Jar Jar level where it's like stop screwing things up Morph but he he does get a lot of people into a lot of trouble for not a lot of reason like uh, which can be obnoxious sometimes (laughs) like that beat with the map where he pretends to be the map oh god yeah right Right, exactly (laughs) I feel like he was supposed to be like the Abu of this movie <laughs> but i I'm, hey hey well it, it would have you know it's it, i guess it works in a sci-fi way just because you know here's uh silver john silver with his with his talking parrot mm-hmm. let's have a sci-fi equivalent of that something that also does mimicry and then we can make it a really cute character for the kids and just have it be fun and have the animators play and everything that's already been addressed so far but yeah. I, i'm i'm realizing kind of like uh because i'm going through like a Disney movies in the past and there is I realize there is kind of like a there's always a humorous sidekick but there's usually about two and 
we have about three in this one. Um, and Doppler's great. Morph is, for the most part, good. Ben, I uh, Ben, we could talk about later. We're we're about to get to that because we're we're on Treasure Planet at this point. Like I, I I love the kudos of that the fact that the planet is ringed with two X's, you know, two rings. Yep. X marks a spot. Yep, yep, big <laughs> fan. Um, and the the like implied lore that you get as they go is really cool. That this planet is just an artificial planet built by an ancient spacefaring civilization. Um, the flat the fact that the map reveals flint's uh the gate that lets you go to different places like the, the we have we have that moment where they find it and they snapshot all these different locations around the galaxy i thought that was so cool and a great way to like tie the whole thing together like the planet is a treasure in its own right especially if you are a pirate mm-hmm. um is this the part where we bring up ben <laughs> i know we're all just waiting yeah so let's talk about ben let's talk about Ben. Let's talk about Ben. Okay. <laughs> I don't hate him. Like, he's not Gurgi levels Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are more obnoxious uh, sidekicks even in other Disney movies than Gurgi. Mm-hmm. It's hard to think of them. Ben is definitely not one of those, but he toes the line, in my opinion. Yeah. He... Mm-hmm. I will, I will oh. give... The- I will give the floor to our host in this case to start the conversation or our guest. Oh, you were your guest? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's get real. Um, are you, are you familiar with the hit animated film Fern Gully? Yeah. <laughs> Ironically enough, I actually um, have to work with the uh, director of that movie. Nice. Yeah. Uh, a few times i've had because uh he teaches at the school that i work at so um i am a mad fan i'm not about to disfern gilly um <laughs> oh, I, uh, i'm not gonna make i'm not gonna make your life hard uh but uh my my uh, i think our mutual friend david server had a, had a very good point here um which is that uh when we previously watched it so i'll credit him to it but that uh, uh ben has like big baddie energy like he's just he's a character who is there too much yeah he's, he's just there all the time and he's trying to be there all the time and if, if if he doesn't have a line he's trying to get a line like he just feels like it feels like they had an idea for a for for like a a, a character who should have been in the whole movie and they'd written the character into the whole movie and then but they but they also like they're trying to do treasure island so they want ben gunn yes mm-hmm. and and they just want to have like the 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 wild lost you know uh sort of weirdo that you find on the island which is a great character and and, and always can be really interesting um and ben gunn does take over the narrative of, of treasure island a little bit like like to their point at least like that character does tend to be a big like whenever you see plays or theatrical adaptations ben gunn does tend to be a, a, a relatively outsized character for the amount of time that he's actually in the narrative mm-hmm. but ben is something else he is <laughs> He is trying at every point to get laughs and is a little too much mm-hmm. uh, for me. So, so <laughs> it's almost, it's almost like he's a robot built specifically for the purpose of fulfilling a need in this movie, which narratively makes sense. But also <laughs> from, a meta, from a meta standpoint. <laughs> so the comedian they chose for this is Martin Short. Um who I don't hate. Like, there's been some movies I really enjoy him in. I three uh, three amigos. Oh, Canada at Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's go. I was gonna say three amigos, but um, 
I, I, but uh, Three Amigos is it basically it's that's a that's an amazing so tune in for our upcoming three amigos (laughs) we talk about the three amigos uh anyway uh but here it's almost like they say try as hard as you can to make people laugh yes yes that is exactly what it feels like it feels like it feels like there's a desperation to Mm -hmm. the character right that should be there but then there's a desperation to the entire effort that feels like it shouldn't be there and i think that's the 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 twofer. Now, now that said, I don't want to completely dismiss Ben because um, there is something really cool about him, which is his animation. Like, yes. mm-hmm. like as a as a visual element in the film, he's actually fulfilling a, a pretty huge need of being like, what happens when we put a fully CG character into this picture? Like, how does that work? What does it look like? How does it feel? What's the what are the dynamics that come out of having a, a character who's animated fundamentally differently than the rest of the film? And I do think that that feels innovative and cool and even now when you watch it you kind of sit there and have to figure out like how did they do this like wh- what was the process by which this character was created because it is there's some remarkable animation uh with ben and, and some remarkable design uh you just have to ignore everything they said funny enough uh i think ben's less annoying than <laughs> martin short's character in we're back a dinosaur story um <laughs> I forgot Martin Short played a character in We're Back a Dinosaur Story. Because his character was pointless in We're Back a Dinosaur Story. Where this one, at least his character has a reason for being who he is. He has his memory chip loss. Mm-hmm. Which explains, like, the whole Ben Gunn character, like, like right. being kind of, having a screw loose, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Literal screw loose, yeah. Yes. So... And um, when he finally gets it back, that does lead to the whole, oh, wait, this place is booby-trapped. You all need to leave, like, <laughs> now. <laughs> right. And I, I, do, I do like, um, I like the idea of a character being able to walk them through the sort of mechanics of the finale. And I do like the mechanics of the finale. I think the idea of uh, learning that the, that the planet is a portal to everywhere in space that this is a a sort of perfect piracy raiding tool that it can be used um as a horde but also as like an escape place and a place of of, of refuge and the fact that it sort of forces them to not take the treasure and and for um john silver to make uh, a better choice all of that is i think really strong like the mechanics of the finale are smart yeah my my problem with it is that in giving it all to ben almost all the other characters become passive. They, they start they start to effectively listen to Ben and learn the movie through Martin Short explaining the movie to them, <laughs> which is uh, uh, what what we in, in the hive mind call anti-drama. Uh, when, mm. when, you, when you come up against anti-drama in a story, you, something has gone terribly wrong. You've removed um, your character stakes from your plot stakes. And all of a sudden the characters don't actually have anything to do except for to survive your plot rather than um, encountering your plot, working their way through your plot, becoming part of your plot. It's the, in a, in a, in a role-playing session, it's the distinction between somebody actually making their way through the dungeon and the GM just telling you all of the things that are in all of the rooms of the dungeon. Mm-hmm. One of those things is good gameplay and one of them is bad gameplay. And so too in, in, uh, in a movie, so too is, is one thing sort of drama and one thing is anti-drama. And I do think that this movie trips pretty hard into anti-drama at a time that it shouldn't, uh, given how dramatic it's been up to that point. Again, because, I, because and then we kind of skipped over this, but I do want to note the Long John Silver stuff, which is ported directly from the book, is done wonderfully. Oh, like, yeah. The, the, the way in which 
Silver is clearly having a hard time being the hardened pirate that he thought he was. The, the way that he is genuinely troubled with the amount of cruelty that he has to demonstrate to this kid who he has grown to genuinely be fond of mm-hmm. is, is adult for it's it, it's the good part of this thing of Disney taking different kind of swings. Like it's the yeah. kind of thing that would normally be a little bit morally complex for a Disney film and is instead exactly as morally complex as it should be. Like it's, it's a really lovely beat. And, so he, and I, you know, I think the movie's doing a lot of really, really great stuff until it accidentally trips into this, um, into this little anti-drama hole. Cause uh, before then I think it's just wonderful. Right. But then, yeah, I, 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 I concur completely. And honestly, I mean, even with the anti-drama, I still think the, the moral ambiguity and the character arc for Silver is at least maintained. And that's important. It is. Because it is. Absolutely. that drives so much of not only the original narrative, but this particular narrative. So if you lose that, you lose everything. But, and, you know, it, it can be up, it can be downplayed in some of the other ones where they, in some versions of Treasure Island I've seen, they do really kind of show how much more of a, um, much more of a villain Silver is. Other times he's more of an anti-hero. This time... You know, it's I, I tend to prefer the idea that he really does actually come to care about Jim. And I like that. I like it when you see it from his perspective, too. I like that we get more screen time with Silver and it's less ambiguous that he's conflicted about his feelings for Jim's. Other, other Treasure Islands, you know, leave that maybe a little bit more vague. But here in the medium of animation in particular, it's great. It's, it's like the heart of the movie. And it's so important. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's it's a it's a way in which the movie really succeeds, even as it it trips in, uh, over itself on occasion. Is that the John Silver Jim stuff just works? It's mm-hmm. just it's just inherently good, uh, and then they execute it with a ton of empathy, which is I think Disney's great strength, right? I think like, yeah. I, I think that we've talked a lot about. I've used I've used that shorthand a lot about like what a Disney movie. Is, which I'm sure has been spoken about on this podcast a lot, yeah. and in, in my in my perspective, a good a good chunk of what is so historically significant and sort of narratively significant about Disney films is their um, their willingness to have empathy for everyone, their willingness to believe the best in people, to give the villain a, a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. Uh, I think there is there's a, an inherent positivity. Uh, to these stories and, and to the way that the studio approaches those stories that is um, that is really important and which does actually happen to, pre- to result in one of the better Long John Silvers because that is a character who, fu- who, who like functions off of that empathy, off of you being able to look at this guy who's made some really bad decisions um, in front of you and still say like, well, yeah, but I want him to reckon with the fact that they were bad decisions and I want mm-hmm. him to come out the other side with... Uh, with some emotional maturity. And I, I hope he gets some of that peace that he's clearly looking for. Cause clearly gold isn't going to solve that. And I do love that by the end of the movie, they finally like, he, he does reckon with that. He does take the right stand. And, and, uh, and then it doesn't, it's not like a clean forgiveness break with Jim. Like their, their trust is shattered to some degree. Um, but Jim is able to walk away from the story knowing that at the very least, John Silver made the right decision and, and does care about him and does hope for the best in him and does think that he's going to end up in a better space in his life. And so these, these two people can kind of leave the story mutually reinforcing each other uh, and, and having learned the lesson uh, that they both need to learn, uh, which is, which is wonderful. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I realize that that feels like we're kind of 
drawing coming to a head with this, but I want to take that pin out that I put in there earlier because I, mm-hmm. I, I have a I have kind of a debate question for both of you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can help me resolve. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Arrow. Okay. Was lost in a black hole. Correct. In space, there's not really a definition of gravity, but would you say that covers an equivalent of a Disney character falling to their doom? Yes. Yes. Okay. So would it be fair to say we can uptick, even though he's not a villain, can we put Mr. Arrow on the plummet counter? Oh, mm. for, for just, he's not a villain. Okay. So by prop, so by that definition, we cannot put Mr. Arrow on the plummet. No, because he's not a villain. Okay. Because we have, since Snow White, we've been, we've been tallying. This is just for, for anybody who's joining us now and for Jackson's benefit, we tally every time a villain plummets to their, to their death. Oh, it's a great, great counter. Hell Yeah. Yeah. We're up to like, surprisingly enough, we're only like maybe 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. I have to go through the final count. Um, and like, it, they don't have to like disappear forever. Like we count Clayton's fall in Tarzan as a as a definite plummet to their doom kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, Lucifer falling out the window in Cinderella. I know there's there's sequels that show Lucifer is still, still around, but we never see Lucifer again in the, in the original. So in my opinion, plummet. Um, so with that context in mind, I want to talk about the bit where there, uh, Jim sneaks back onto the, the legacy. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get the real map and he runs into Mr. Scroop. They fight around the ship a bunch. And Ben, meanwhile, is messing with the, the wires, accidentally turns the artificial gravity on the ship off. And uh, Scroop like, tries to lunge at Jim, gets caught in the flag. Jim cuts the rope and he just, you know, he just drifts away into space to disappear. The way they presented is him, you know, screaming and flailing as he, Mm -hmm. you know, falls away from the camera. Does that count as a plummet? I don't think so. And why not? The reason reason why I say that is uh, he's flying away. He's not falling. But there's, it's it's relative in space though. But like, if you fall, you could land on something and die that way. Where in this one... (laughs) He's gonna, he'll float forever, most likely, until what's gonna stop it is he's gonna basically suffocate and die. But there's our air in space, and we've established there's right, air. Right, yeah, the, the, there's air in the aether. That's the whole point. Yeah. So he will, he will float forever until he dies of starvation. Okay, that's more likely. <laughs> or, or, hits, or hits a piece of space debris. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so the plummet, so the plummet counter has an inherent, so in order for the plummet to, to function on the plummet counter, you have to be uh, you have to be aware of the inevitability of a death by uh, uh, by smashing. Well, it doesn't have to be by smashing because we did add Clayton to the plummet counter, which means there's a possibility that it can be a death by smashing. Um, the the fall has to, the fall the plummet has to lead to the character's demise. Uh, when McLeach goes over a waterfall and the rescuers down under, that's a plummet. We actually counted Maleficent. And, did did uh, we? Count? We did count Maleficent. We did count Maleficent, we, but did we? You, ca- you argued really strongly for that. I, I yeah, because she you on that one. yes, she was stabbed, but she also falls during it, and the fall could lead her demise. Like she stabbed. Yeah. Her. So so by that credit though, just by by dint of this being a Disney film and having that flavor, can we count Mr. Scroop? as a plummet it feels very disney plummety he's falling away he's you know he's drifting away from the camera screaming like you would watch a, a any disney villain it it does I feel like a to me it feels like a direct answer obviously i am the dilettante who's just joining you and being yeah. like well it's a plumping well, counter well, but uh <laughs> it does it does feel to me like 
uh, it's sort of a direct answer to that trope. That is... Like they, I'm sure within the offices that they were doing, they, you know, upon doing this, the answer was like, oh, and then we can have him plummet away. Um, like, like we do with villains that go away. Huh. Uh, so it's a quick, actually, painless and bloodless way to get your villain out of the picture. That, actually, that's not a bad point. Cause you're right. If you were in, in the, uh, studio, by the way, did we up, really did up Tick McLean? Cause we thought he, he died because of the crocodiles. Oh, McLeach? McLeach, sorry. Oh no, McLeach, not McLean. <laughs> McLeach. Did he or no? Because he went over. We, he goes over a waterfall, oh, and we right. never see him that's again. Right. That's yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's been it's been a while since we've we watched that one. So, um, yeah. So, so okay, but yeah, hearing what Jackson's saying, like in the in the writers' room, they'd be like, oh, and then he flies away like a plummet because the idea is it's a clean death. That's always right. been the idea. Right. And we, where, we, we, where does the villain go? We don't know. We don't see it. <laughs> we wanted to explore how often this comes up because it's such a tropey thing for Disney to remove your villain by having them plummet to their doom. So That's a great point. Exactly. So and, and and to be fair, this is a far cry from what happened in the equivalent of Treasure Island, and um, where uh, Jim Hawkins shoots uh, Israel Hands in the head with a pistol. <laughs> At least that's how. Yeah. I yeah. This is true. Uh, Jim Jim becomes a tiny murderer. Uh, yep. <laughs> where uh, where here he is he, he is a little bit more tacitly forgiven for that in a very Disney fashion. So that is true. Yes. And to be fair, he does this in the Disney movie too. You watch a young Bobby Driscoll get a knife thrown into his shoulder and at the same time fire his pistol and hit hands in the head, and then the his hands falls from the rigging, smacks into the deck, and then falls into the ocean. This isn't a Disney movie, everybody. Yeah, okay, man, those them old school Disney movies. I love it. <laughs> well, that's the, well, that's the idea behind like Disney movies. The reason they had the fall is because it's like the it's like the villain has to die somehow, but the death has to be because in a way where it's like, well, it's not the hero's fault technically because. It's the fall that kills him, not the... I mean, I always think back to Gaston. He kind of gets bumped into the bed of the beast, stumbles, and then falls off the roof of the castle. So. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> Gaston, Gaston gets the nicest of all deaths. He yeah. sure does. He, and I think he's like most... dies by accident. <laughs> he does. Most gruesome definitely goes to Clayton from Tarzan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But even the, the, that's the idea, like, oh, look, he plummets as an accident because, again, he's trying to attack... Yeah, uh, Tarzan. Tarzan uses uh, like flings vines at him to stop him, but it's his own accident that causes it. It's the same with um, a Hunchback of Notre Dame. He also plummets to de- his death, but uh, of course, yes. accident. Uh, and okay, I'll say it's the same kind of here too. So I will let you do the plummet counter. Yay! Will- Let's uptick that plummet counter. Oh, I'm so happy about that. I've been, I, I, I wanted to campaign for that one so hard. Okay. Jackson made a good point though. Like, I th- thank you. I'm glad to have saved the argument. <laughs> thank you, Jackson. You're All right. quite welcome. Anytime. Call awesome. me in for your plummet counter needs. Yes. <laughs> From a story standpoint, does this count as a plummet? <laughs> I'll be your phone a friend. Yeah. I love it. I'm, 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 it's like a bat phone. It's on the emergency line. <laughs> Somebody needs to know whether or not a fall was a proper fall to their death. I'm on it. <laughs> oh my gosh.
Well, um, I think that about covers our bases, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the epilogue really just kind of shows how everything goes well. Uh, Silver gets to leave and one of those, honestly, my favorite piece of technology in this is just the little, the hover dinghies. Oh, like the lifeboats? They're the little oh, they're lifeboats great. With the jet engine. Those are so cool. <laughs> well, and they're a nice way to call back to, I, I do like this a lot because it, and again, it's it's one of those things that like, I almost wish they did a little bit more of in Star Trek 9, given how they set it up. That like, there is a really great opportunity to show how Jim's abilities as a kind of young, rapacious, running away from cops, being a, a, you know, crazy kid come in handy. And here there's this great opportunity to be like, at the end of the movie, his sky surfing actually is is viable as a, as a uh, a useful um, solution to the problem. Like it Mm -hmm. helps them win uh, in a way that it isn't just like, hey, look, we had him glean the cube at the beginning of our movie. Like, it's like, no, he actually has like, there's a reason for this. I I do appreciate it as a callback that, yeah. So it justifies it. So yeah. Chekhov's hoverboard. Exactly. Chekhov's hoverboard. <laughs> uh, I uh, I was wondering if before we, we truly wrapped up on Treasure Island, we could talk about uh, the proposed sequel to Treasure Island that got absolutely kabunked and kiboshed the minute that this movie came out. Yeah, that was what they were going to do a franchise with this. And... They had a TV show and they had a sequel. They'd already cast Willem Dafoe as the villain. Like they were going oh. on the sequel. Um and uh, and it got uh, and it just got completely kiboshed. But I do I do think it's a it's a fun thing because they you know you run out of narrative. You don't have any Treasure Island left. So how do you uh, how do you answer uh, Treasure Island? How do you make a second Treasure Island? Uh, you know how do you how do you do Treasure Planet two without just like doing a totally uh, you know just like doing the story again? Uh, and the way they did it was effectively to do a. Um, uh, was to make Jim like a like a space navy officer, and it was going to be like him and his space navy class going off and being space cops, which I think was probably not the right move. Um, but there was a whole uh, there's a whole it's going to be the Botany Bay piracy, you know, uh, a prison uh, uh, escape was effectively the basis for the thing, and Willem Dafoe was going to be a robot captain who we're going to go full robot rather than like cyborg this time. Oh, uh, and he was and he, he Iron Beard, and Iron Beard <laughs> was going to um, you know he's more machine than man now, uh, and Iron Beard <laughs> was going to uh, take over the Botany Bay prison colony and, and pr- prison asteroid. I'm sorry, and get all the people out of, you know, get all the pirates out. And Jim had to go uh, team up with Long John Silver, who of course uh, like knows how to get around the prison asteroid because he's been there. Uh, and the two have to reunite alongside uh, his new uh, love interest, Kate, uh, who in all the designs looks um, sort of, uh, looks like she is of the dog species that Long John Silver is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were going to go on a ship with Ben, who was going to be all over this movie. Oh, oh no. no. Yeah, he was going to be the pilot of the of the new boat, oh, uh, no. and they were all going to go uh, uh, try to save a lot of pirates. The problem with the movie is when you read the outline, um, which they've made pretty public. Uh, it's Long John Silver has the exact same emotional arc. They just run him. <laughs> they run him through the exact arc. He like he he teams up with him, and he's got uh, a retirement fund of all this money that he's been saving up but he and he brings it with him but then at the end of the movie it's all rest it's all it's all risked and then he has to give it up so that he can destroy the boat and he can save jim and it's like it's literally the same it's like the exact same plot um so they were probably wise not to make it because i it, it feels like a genuine attempt just to do the same movie again yeah um, 
with like with like a with like a legit villain this time. Uh, but I do love the idea that we almost got like a, a just a huge franchise of aether punk pirate space content from Disney. And, I would have box office robbed us of it. I would have been all for the the, the TV series version and expanding the the Aetherverse of this. It could have been really fun. It would have been really cool. Could you imagine? Like the first thing we said, it's like a, it's like Jim Hawkins and his Navy friends going around. Like so, we would have gotten like what a Horatio Hornblower kind of situation. Ooh, I love that. See, that would have been great. Um, there's a there's a piece of concept art of iron beard that i'm just going to throw into the chat so that you guys can see it okay (laughs) it's one of it's one of my favorite pieces of disney concept art because it's terrifying uh he they iron beard was gonna have like this robot face it's in the chat now okay Um, and uh he was gonna have this robot face and then when he got like angry his face would open up and would reveal his like angry robot mouth i guess um, but it had like had like shards and and I don't know. It looks like something out of like Hyperion. It's like a terrifying image. That would be that. I'm trying to get it open in the. Oh, here we go. Whoa! <laughs> there he is. Look at that. <laughs> oh my! God. You know what? You that know is amazing? horrifying. You know what's amazing? He does look kind of like Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> kind of does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were gonna do it. Dang. Yeah. yeah. Now imagine that guy decked out in like a tricorn hat and a great coat too. With Willem Dafoe's voice. Jeez. Oh man. Yeah, it would have rocked. It would have been oh, something. Yeah. I'd be very scared if that robot came up to me and asked me if I liked the taste of his lobster. <laughs> <laughs> imagine being stuck in a lighthouse with that guy. Oh no. Oh. Yeah. Roll, 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 roll creepy. Mm-hmm. Roll creepy. <laughs> Did you kill a seagull? <laughs> not, not, not something. Not something you nope, want. Nope. Nope. I did nothing. Mm-mm, nope. <laughs> oh man. Hey, this has been an absolute delight, and I, I thank you for the information about this series because, like, I will be disappointed. I'm not disappointed we didn't get the sequel just because it the character arc would have been frustrating because we got that but man i want to see this universe continue to get explored and it probably won't but it will live on forever in our hearts and minds this is a beautiful beautiful setting Um, completely agreed oh yeah and a fantastic action movie that didn't deserve i think the panning it got i was just a victim of circumstance i feel like with its uh where where and when and how it got released yeah it it, the release time was just not good um it probably should I don't know when would have been a better time. Maybe during the summer? Maybe. I mean, what was the other movie you said that came out around the same time was the Santa Claus 2? Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, this was like a this was like a holiday picture, which was not wise. No. Um, no, it should have been a summer, it absolutely should have been a summer picture. Yeah. Um, and I I I, I gotta imagine Titan A was a part of that. Like it was like one of those Armageddon deep impact situations where the two studios just saw each other from across a, a crowded field and realized that they were both equally equipped and it was like, all right, I guess we're gonna do this. And like, you know, it just they 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 played chicken and I don't think either of them really won. When we when we get around the dawn as evidenced from- by the lack of a Titan A2. Well, the, the one of the tricky parts with uh when you release a a children's film or a film that's going to be geared towards children is you have to do it when there's not many others because you got to realize also it's the parents who are buying the tickets yeah and what and a parent is more likely going to be like i want to see the film that looks more realistic because it feels more adult to me but right or i have the only have the budget to take my family to one 
movie. Exactly. And, like, and you know, you're already buying, you're buying popcorn, you're buying the par- parking and you're getting the kids there. And I mean, it's a, you know, it's the $50 to see a movie kind of thing. So it, it ends up, it ends up adding up. Exactly. So it's like, chances are, do I want to see this unknown space pirate movie or do I want to take my kids to see Harry freaking Potter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially then. Right. Yeah. Harry Potter probably knocked everything out of the water. At the oh time. yeah. Like <laughs> this was still a time when like, there were like six hour lines for those films. Yeah, um, I remember. People, I remember actually when I went to go see Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, people were still dressing up and everything. Uh-huh. And yeah. Oh man. It's like Star Wars. Oh, it was like it was a madness. It was yeah. Crazy. Um, again, thank you again for joining us for uh, this podcast episode. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen. And um, I'm glad you remembered that I'd been so enthusiastic about Treasure Planet. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things we always remember, honestly, and I mean this in the best possible way, is your enthusiasm. Yes. And <laughs> that's the kind of energy we like to bring to this show. So oh, I'm glad but, I could be helpful. But it helps that you you also bring your 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 knowledge of the genre and your, your passion. And I, I appreciate that uh, as well. well. Th- thank you. Speaking of, so and speaking of speaking of genre, uh, is there any like obviously you you've been pretty writing a bunch of really fun stuff? Just it, I keep I keep I think about like the arc of how long we've you know been acquainted with you and like what you've worked on in that time span, and it still blows my mind how much cool stuff you've done. Um, is there anything oh, you, you want you're working on that you want to like? promote share with our share with our listeners yeah sure um uh, unfortunately a lot of my coolest stuff for next year is uh is still under wraps but will be announced within the next few months uh in the short term however we are rounding the bend especially for for space fans um and for anybody who uh you know we've talked a lot about star trek tonight um we're rounding the bend on star trek year five uh which is our comic uh that finishes the fifth year uh the last year of star trek the original series, so the original Shatner, Nimoy, you know, DeForest Kelly uh, uh, iteration of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put it together like a writer's room, so it's us and Jody Hauser and Brandon Easton and Jim McCann and just a wonderful, um, really diverse and really excellent room of people uh, who have been plotting out this show. Uh, and it's uh, every two issues is an episode. So we are just rounding up to episode 17, uh, which is coming, or issue 17, which is coming out uh, here at the end of December. It's a fully painted issue that... Oh. Uh, it- explores the origins of uh, of one of my favorite sort of footnote Star Trek characters, a character called, a character called Gary Seven, uh, who was a um, uh, an attempted spinoff character that they never were able to make happen. It was kind of like James Bond meets Doctor Who. Uh, and I've uh, <laughs> we've turned him into the villain of year five and uh, have been having a lot of fun really deconstructing the character and looking at what makes him tick. Uh, so the first two trade paperbacks of year five are out, uh, Odyssey's End, volume one, and The Wine Dark Deep, which is volume two. Uh, you can find uh, anywhere. They're great gifts for um, the Star Trek fan in your life. And if that fan is you then you should get them for yourself because they're really good um so that's <laughs> so uh that's what i'll i'll, I'll press uh, right now and then for anybody on the uh on the uh anybody out there who's like much more on the literary side um and you know we we started this conversation before we were recording talking about our you know the books we've been reading recently um colin and i uh, collaborated with uh, Brandon Sanderson, the fantasy author, uh, earlier this year to put out uh, the first uh, couple of, uh, or maybe three, uh, original graphic novels uh, called Dark One. Uh, that are bra- It's a brand new universe. It's a brand new story. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's Brandon's uh, sort of initial idea. And then Colin and I have come in and really just gotten the chance to tell um, an amazing story uh, inside of his world. Uh, and 
it's just with with Nathan Gooden, who's one of our very favorite artists. Uh, that is out from Vault Comics. Uh, the it can be ordered directly from the publisher right now uh, because of COVID. Uh, the bookstore release just got completely scuttled. So uh, you can buy it directly from Vault Comics. Uh, alternately, you can wait until May and then it'll be everywhere. It'll be at your bookstores. It'll be on Amazon. It'll, you, know, you, can, you can buy it everywhere uh, when it comes out wide uh, in May. But we're really, really proud of this book and especially for like fantasy fans or people who are looking for something uh, that's kind of deconstructive uh, in that way. We have some, uh, I, I'm really proud of how that book turned out. So those are our two uh, projects that we are uh, that are out right now and then stay tuned because uh, 2021 is going to have a lot of very exciting stuff coming from Colin Kelly and I uh, and I, I can't wait to be able to talk about it uh, but if I do right now the snipers trained on me outside my house will fire uh, so I'm gonna not do that <laughs> well that's that's legit like I'm gonna I'll make sure that in the show notes we have links to rel- uh, relevant places where you can uh, look into oh, these. thank you books can pick them up if you want to. Um, honestly, I will probably do that. I mean, the dark one, I've seen you uh, tweeting about it and actually looks really cool. And I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it, honestly. So. <laughs> oh, well, I, 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 let me know what you think. I'm very, very proud of it. I think it turned out wonderfully. Um, I'm, I'm sad that it, it had to get staggered the way that it has uh, in terms of its release. Um, but the people who have been able to read it have, you know, have really enjoyed it. The reviews have been great. So I can't wait to actually get it out there while for everybody to see. I honestly, I don't know how, if I have much to plug. Midnight Marinara, uh, not so long ago, we had uh, our usual Halloween special. It's still up there if you want to check it out. Our, our annual Halloween episode, which brings the show out of hiatus. This is one Kayla wrote, and it's really cool. It's an original story called Deadline and uh, mm-hmm. worth checking out. Not, not necessarily a holiday-themed one, although it does take place kind of between Thanksgiving and the start of December. It does. Well, it takes place over the course of a fall semester. So yeah, if you, if you want to go listen to it, please do. I, um, uh, I worked hard on it. So. And while I'm thinking of sci-fi plugs, hey, uh, if you're listening to this and you enjoy uh, Doctor Who, uh, we did finally put the wrap on uh, the Game of Rassilon podcast, which I'm an editor on. And uh, that's a actual play tabletop role-playing game uh, done by our good friend and a guest on this show, Ben Patton. Uh, they've put together with uh, Michael Nixon as co-GM, they've put together this really awesome, you know, some cool speculative Doctor Who role-playing with uh, a, a great cast. Uh, I've had a ton of fun. Riley Silverman as the Doctor. Riley Silverman plays the Doctor. Dan Peck as... Um, as, as one of the companions, uh, Kate Lee as an additional companion. There's a lot of guest vo- guests that have come on. Uh, they just did their Doctor Who Day special, which Ben edited, uh, that has Joseph Scrimshaw playing a previous Doctor. So it's a multi-Doctor oh, special. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so um, I did not have a hand in editing that one, but man, it's really good. And uh, they are going to be setting up for their... Uh, their third season pretty soon. So uh, keep your ears posted for that. But in the meantime, there will also be a link in the show notes to uh, the game of Rassilon. The first two seasons are all there uploaded. And I'm very proud to say that I had a hand in um, editing those episodes. So yeah, I just, while we're on this fun space kick, I figured I'd throw that out there. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I'm, uh, I love Scrimshaw and I love Doctor Who. So uh, you just sold me. Oh, perfect. <laughs> um, I'll send, I'll get you a link after this really too so uh also so for next month uh we're going on the complete opposite direction uh in with the movie uh, brother bear oh boy yeah oh boy it's been a long time i don't even know what to expect anymore. yeah <laughs> i've never seen it maybe i'll watch it so i can listen to the yeah, i've only seen it once 
I'm pretty sure I've only seen it once. Yeah, um, and we will have our uh, guests, um, Eli and Kylie from uh, Animal Fact Files and uh, uh, Cinema Nippon joining us for that one. So, Ooh. Yeah. Awesome. Can't think of better people to have on for that one. Oh, absolutely. Thank you all very much for listening, and uh, I hope the rest of your holiday season is uh, is good. Uh, let's try and move into 2021 with a little bit of cautious optimism in our hearts, if we can, because this movie is warm and has a, features a warm and inviting sci-fi setting. Let's try and make our own warm and inviting sci-fi setting. <laughs> now, when your boat stops, please be stepping out to your right. Seat your appetite for terror and reserve your ears for a feast of the sound. The Midnight Marinara Podcast is here for you, intrepid listener. We sample only the finest and sinister stories and, quoting them with our own unique spooky sauce, present them to you as eerie audio dramas. Tune in as Midnight Marinara sends shivers of fear and spasms of laughter through you. Bon appetit. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.